HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, through this half hour of culinary history. And today I have a question to pose to all of you, and that is, what is America's national dish? Do we have one? And by the same token, what is our national cuisine? That is really a... um, something that food writers have been grappling with for a long time Uh, they and i'm as i paraphrase something here that was that appeared in a uh, a presentation at the new york public library recently food writers consistently proclaimed that america had no national dish some food writers took this observation further and claimed that america had no national cuisine and yet although there was nothing to write about Cookbook compilers and journalists spent a great deal of time describing American food. And indeed, yes, our shelves. I I was counting my bookshelf, which I I have a rather extensive cookbook collection. It's been compiled over many years. And the bottom shelf is all American. And I just did a quick count this morning to see. And there must be over 55 books just on on the shelf, on on the front of the bottom shelf alone, devoted to American cuisine. So if we have no national cuisine, we have an awful lot of books about them. Uh, so today I have with me Megan Elias, and Megan is 
the author of a couple of books, one in particular called Stir It Up, Home Economics in American Culture, and also Food in the United States from 1895 to 1940. She's well prepared to talk about American cuisine. Uh, Megan is a, a professor, associate professor of history at um, City University's Queensboro Community College, and she is currently a writer in residence at the New York Public Library's Wertheim Study. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Megan, what made you explore this this whole notion of American cuisine or a national dress or looking at our food and do we have a particular food? Well, it started when I was writing about nutritionists, about the history of nutrition, and I found a lot of um, critiques about the kind of food that nutritionists were writing about, um, the kind of cookbooks that they put together, sort of archetypal American recipes, and people saying, you know, this, this is, um, nutritionists have no sense of taste, they have no sense of palate. And I started to wonder about that and then to kind of to look more about critiques of American food. And I found that it's very, very um, accepted in American food writing to say American food is disgusting, essentially, that it's bad, that it's not food. Um, and, and so the implication then is that an entire nation of people who, um, you know, live in, in, a, in a situation of bounty um, – eat food that's terrible and they keep eating it and so I was wondering how is this how is you know it's not true as far as I can tell right but it why is this a kind of pervasive theme in American food writing and and so that it's okay to say um, Americans eat disgusting food and they love it um, and not to say that about any other culture in the world and and this is taken on food going into homes or just in Everywhere. cafes yeah. across. Wow, that's yeah. that's interesting because it's certainly not my take on, on American food. Right. And having grown up in the Midwest as well, which you know they say, oh, Midwest cooking is also bland and awful. Not true again to my you know right because you but, like it. Yeah, yeah, because well, exactly, it's because I like it. However, um, we as we were discussing before the show. Um, there was a question posed as what is Midwestern mm-hmm. cuisine? And the immediate answer from so many people came back, casseroles. And yes, definitely. Yeah. And there are reasons for that. I mean, there are, um, there are reasons for uh, for the kind of casseroles that Americans seem to like and to still like, that they that uh, the kind that are made from a couple of different contents of different cans. And you mm. put things together and you put something on top. Maybe it's, um, you know, something from a box. It's either the onion, the crispy onions or the... Um, the cornflakes or something, um, and that, that there are good reasons that that kind of cuisine emerged. That it it, it comes out of um, a shift in middle class housing, um, um, and the, and just the availability of canned stuff. That when it was new, people were excited and they experimented right. with it. Right, right? that was post war, and of course, Laura yeah. Shapiro. We were talking about earlier. She um, wrote a wonderful book on uh, and talking about frozen foods and box right. mixes and cans. And yes, and this was supposed to. You know, this was supposed to um, relieve the woman of the house from, from the did. drudgery of the it kitchen, did, right? right? And this is the, the the kind of really interesting thing about this is that in the um, by the '30s, most middle class American women didn't have household help, but their mothers had. Hmm. So, their, in their mothers' households, they had not learned how to cook because someone else was doing the cooking. So they come; they have to come into the kitchen and actually start cooking. And they've never been trained to do it. But then on top of it, cooking is something that servants do. So you want to avoid it as much as possible. And if you can turn it into this kind of, you know, half an hour of creativity, easy, just throwing right? stuff together, <laughs> and it's something that no one has ever had before. You know, we have to remember that the casseroles and jello salads were incredibly exciting at one point because they represented something completely new. Mm-hmm. And this is this, um, 
this long-standing, since the 1930s, critique of American food is that Americans are interested in progress in food and that a true cuisine is one that sort of doesn't change. Right. So right. As, as people are critiquing American food as being the, you know, constantly changing and constantly looking for new, improved, you know, did it go to the moon, then I want to eat it, that kind of food, that um, they're also sort of creating this mythology of French food as a never-changing entity. And French mm. food is good and American food is bad. Mm-hmm. And that dichotomy that we could, it's sort of almost taken for granted in American food writing that French, the French know about food. They care. They love food. But the Americans, oh, they just don't know about food. Yeah. If they knew about food, they would eat French food. You know? So it's this, <laughs> it's, it gets sort of funny, but also sort of disheartening sometimes. Well, and look how far we've come um, as, a, as a country. I mean, we are still, I always claim, and when, when I've had these discussions with other guests that on the air, that, that we are still culinarily a very young country. And we have progressed so far. I, we didn't for a long time, but we, now we have progressed, you know, so far, so rapid. If you look at where we've come now, how we've, it's tipped the scale in the other direction, at least um, in the metropolitan areas on either coasts. I think you can still travel coast to coast through a lot of cities and you get some of that bland um, food where I don't know where where product is not a, but products are available. I was going to say product availability was limited, no, but products are no. available everywhere and now. They always have. And now we've yeah. got the most innovative cuisine, and in fact, a lot of the restaurants in France and right. across the rest of Europe are adopting a lot of the innovations that are coming out of the haute cuisine, if you will, of America. Yeah. And that's so. It's it's it really is. You're right. There has been progress. Well, no, but, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's what you don't the, think there's progress. Um, I think there's there's this kind of long-standing. Um, and it, it pops up in cookbooks and in gourmet magazine over and over again. This idea that America is making progress, but what is what does that mean? Progress, like it's always the progress is sort of more towards um, a European f- style of thinking about food. Mm. So they say, okay, we're we're getting somewhere. And you see them saying it in eighteen in the eighteen nineties, we're getting somewhere. We're starting to learn how to cook French. Then in the nineteen thirties, we're getting somewhere. We're you know we're getting rid of prohibition. We're starting to use wine. The forties, we're getting somewhere. Right. Some of us have been to France. We've picked up some you know, proper food styles. And then it keeps going. So it's always, we're we're going somewhere. And I think what I'm trying to see is why do people keep writing that way, right? Why is it always this constant narrative of progress, which you don't see in writing about other... Rather than we are. Yeah, exactly. This is what Americans eat. Americans like hamburgers and hot dogs. Why is that not... Why is that something that we have to keep questioning, right? right? Well, it's interesting because in in, um, positing this this question about what is America's national cuisine or what is America's national dish it's it's a difficult one to answer because you have to first of all put a face on an American yes exactly yeah so there's uh, of course there's no national dish there are things that are sort of representative of a lot of Americans but not of everybody um and and this is the other thing that I keep pursuing in these cookbooks is why? Why do we need a national dish? Why mm-hmm. do we need a national cuisine? And it's, again, it's on this sort of French model of culture. The French have a cuisine. So in order to be sort of high culture, you need a cuisine. And, yeah. you know, that's, it's just a construction. It's not necessarily true or false. Yeah. And even those countries are changing. Their face is changing, sure. too, with, you yes. know, they're accepting more, more immigrants and, and they've got right. a changing population. But we were formed 
mm-hmm. on, a, on a multicultural population. Yes. So yes. it would it's it's a you know a difficult to even assume that we would think that we have one particular national dish. Although right. I did ask the question of a few people, and the answers I didn't really get that many answers, oh, but no. the answers I did get were interesting because. It's their way of thinking. And what is America's national dish? I got answers like pot roast, which you can right. tie back to European beginnings, yeah. of course. Hamburger, uh-huh. which is debatable, yeah. but, you know, true. Apple pie, oh, which no, truly, no. again, once it wants to, you know, European. I think oh, barbecue chicken, southern oh, fried chicken. Yeah. Uh, but I think the one that won was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yes. Yeah, and it's representative of a lot of things that people say about American food. A lot of the long-standing critiques are that it's a a nation of people who don't want to stop. So you get a sandwich and you go. Um, And also that it's a kind of, there's this constant uh, critique that Americans don't have a mature palate. So mm-hmm. it's sort of childhood food. Yes. <laughs> Although you can't get it everywhere. I'm, I'm kind of partial to peanut butter and jelly, um, especially because it's sort of the cheapest sandwich you can ever buy. That's right. And I can't find it everywhere. I kind of have charted out where <laughs> I can get it, which delis will do it. But of course, then it has don't. to be the right kind of bread and the right kind of jelly. Yeah, you know? good luck. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that came from my friend Elizabeth McGowan, or um, Catherine McGow- McGowan, excuse me, Catherine McGowan, who um, writes a blog called Comestibles. Oh. And she mentioned it because she's married to an Australian who abhors the notion of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I guess you have to be an American to appreciate the flavor. It definitely (laughs) seems to be something that other people do not want to import. There are no peanut butter and jelly chains in in the rest of the world. Like there are hamburger chains. Uh, Now you said that um, in talking about American food writers, food writers trying to define the American Mm -hmm. cuisine, and certainly cookbooks abound with that. Uh, what have been in cookbooks and cookbook writing? What have been some of the major changes? You said um, you mentioned that you could really chart some changes from the end of the yes. Civil War through the demise of, of Gourmet Magazine. Yeah, and in writing about what American food is, um, there's this kind of starting um, that the real critique starts after the First World War. Before that, the writing about American food is is. Um, is less critical. So there's a, a kind of a, a, a phase right after the Civil War of regionalist cookbooks, mm-hmm. and primarily of the South. So there's a lot of attention to Southern food, um, and, and again, creating this dichotomy between the unchanging and the changing, and unchanging being good and changing being bad. So the North is industrialist, and their, their food is it's sort of portrayed in Southern cookbooks as kind of soulless, and Southern food is full of soul and character and romance and, and tragedy, right? Because these are cookbooks right. that are written by Southerners who lost all their power because they were white and they, you know, they had to give up. Um, so they're sort of white supremacist cookbooks. Hmm. Um, not sort of, they are. But they're, they're very much intent on, on defining national food through regions. So you're, you're, you've come back together after the Civil War, but you break up kind of regionally through cuisine. Right. Well, if you look at... Um the history of cookbooks and what's out there, a lot of it, you find uh, popular recipes and things didn't appear in cookbooks so much as they did in pamphlets. Pamphlet, yeah. Pamphlets were a big part, that, that ephemera from right. products and, and things are a big part of our recipe collection. And really. those are some of my favorite cookbooks there, what I call the corporate cookbooks that came mm. with the refrigerator or the stove right. or the can of something. And they're just wonderful. They're so... 
they're some of the most beautifully illustrated cookbooks um, early on when other cookbooks didn't have great illustrations because they're putting money into the illustrations. And they're, they're walking this wonderful line between being innovative and being traditional. So they're giving you something old but new. And my favorite example from this is a, um, something called strawberry shortcake, which is a really um, typical American dessert, or had been for a long time. I don't know if it is so much anymore. Um, but this is from a Frigidaire uh, cookbook. Frigidaire, I think this is the Frozen Dainties, which is one of the best huh. cookbooks. And it's, it's, so it's strawberry shortcake, something everybody recognizes, but it's made new through the refrigerator. So you see the point of having a refrigerator. Right. And there are these special little... So you need yeah, the refrigerator. Yeah, you need the refrigerator <laughs> to make this thing that you've been, your ancestors have been making for hundreds of years. Um, but it's made with sponge cake and strawberries and whipped cream, and then you stick it in the freezer for a while, mm. and it becomes something new. But I love those, the playing with old recipes to make them something exciting to, to right. uh, consumers. And the recipes on the back of boxes of yes, product boxes, Yes, I'm always right? drawn to those. Yes, of course. And there's certain things. things that you can't really duplicate unless you make it as it's written on the back of the right. of the box. Like the, the chocolate wafers making that, that oh, yes. icebox cake. The icebox cake, cake. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And and to remember that there were no icebox cakes until there were iceboxes. That's right. So right. someone had to invent that kind of cooking. And that, again, that's something that um, Americans are critiqued. And this is by, by their Americans for doing, is for really jumping on that bandwagon of the, you know, everything new is exciting and tasty. Um, but, but that's, you know, it, I think in, in a sense that's true that they did that, that that... Um, Americans had access to things like icebox cakes or the possibility of the icebox cake um, before a lot of other people in the world did. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of places where you can't, you couldn't make an icebox cake because you don't have an icebox. Well, I know that a lot of the early cookbooks too, and well, after post-war cookbooks Mm -hmm. were um, stressed nutrition, how to be a good housewife, how to put a balanced meal on the table. So, you know, they were all encompassing tomes of of home economics really yeah Yeah, not quite home economics because that's more scientific but um trying to take uh nutritional sort of nutritional wisdom and apply it to every day Mm -hmm. which didn't always work i'm just reading a book um at the moment that's all about how to live a healthy life and it's about not combining the wrong foods with each other this is from 1943 and it really doesn't make any sense at all because sounds almost like the medieval renaissance kind of very much it's very very like the humorous it's very much like the humorous yeah Yeah. well when we come back we're gonna take a short break when we come back we'll go a little further on the cookbook writing and uh talk about some of that regionality okay right a long long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died So bye bye, 
Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die We are back talking about America's national cuisine with Megan Elias. And we were talking, Megan, earlier about um, some of the cookbooks. Now, what we, um, and we were, I guess, left off around the 30s or the 40s. And um, just about to get into the regionality and the regional cookbooks. But there's something that actually represents regions, but is another important phase of cookbook writing and those are the community cookbooks as you right, mentioned you right. didn't want to talk about it too much yeah. <laughs> all those church yeah. gatherings the church cookbooks the junior Thousands. league cookbooks mm-hmm. that whatever organization got together yeah so they um they start coming out really in the um in the period after the civil war every community has one and they're for raising money for local projects and um they're, the curious thing about them is that even though they seem to be regional, so it's just from a particular tiny town or small city, they're, um, they're actually all the same. So you get the same recipes from a cookbook in Ohio that you do from one in Alabama, from one in New York, from one in Massachusetts. And I actually made this what I call the insane database, um, which is a database of hundreds of these cookbooks just in a, you know a pie section how many how many how many for, how many right. different recipes for so apple I could pie find, right? exactly and that's what i was saying earlier was that i actually didn't find very many recipes for apple pie at all what i found were a million recipes for lemon pie and then a million recipes for things like lobster newburg mm-hmm. which you know obviously in the middle of ohio it's a little hard to make <laughs> right. a lobster newburg but people wanted to be they wanted their recipe to represent who they were and if you gave the lobster Newburgh recipe, you were really saying to everyone in your community, I'm sophisticated, uh-huh, right? If uh-huh. you put the Delmonico um, lobsters del- or crab Delmonico recipe, you're saying, I know about New York. I know about, you know, this sort of cosmopolitan cuisine. So the recipes really, and this is something we're, we're talking about earlier, I think, too, that the recipes, you, you would think that they wouldn't give a recipe for something that everybody knew how to make, like cornbread. But some people wanted to be known. For their, for their own recipe. Right. Right. And I'm the cornbread woman, right? right? And she's the beef a la mode woman, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, I'm, I know that you're familiar with Molly O'Neill's mm-hmm. recent book called One Big Table. Yeah. And she was addressing this similar question, and, and or don't Americans cook anymore right, was right. more her, her question, and drove all across country cooking with people. Right. And she, what she said was, Ameri- she kind of, if she, if you want to distill it down to to one answer, which is impossible, um, that Americans do still cook, and that the American cuisine is really geared to the hometown, mm-hmm. or regional regionality yeah. again, and American cuisine is more hometown appetite cuisine. Right, and I think that really does wrap things up as far as how people cook, right. but not necessarily, as you say, what they want to write about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been hard for people to write really about home cooking. Um, but then also, you know, you notice trends, that things trickle down. So you go, you know, what's something like, um, oh, having dried cranberries on your salad, mm. you know, that it's it'll be new on the coasts. And then five years later, you go, you have dinner in, you know, St. Louis or something, and they're cranberries on the salads and it's new and it just you know the ideas and then it's in mcdonald's right right and so the ideas kind of filter around and sometimes you know um some things never right are gonna go all the way across the country 
Um, well, it, you mentioned um, cookbook right Well, then we we started. Well, when did we have <laughs> well-known authors? Cookbook authors yeah. came about, and that that was a little that was a little later, late forties, early fifties. We started to have a few well-known. Yeah, you. I mean, that's the beginning of actual food writers like M. F. K. Fisher. That she's really the first person who just writes food. Um, other people, there are and other not ne- and not necessarily recipes either. Right. Yeah. She, she's the first who writes. I think she's really important because she writes about food as experience. Right. And that's still a really a dominant theme in American food writing that, that it's something, it's not just something you eat. It's not something you make for your family, God forbid, right? It's something you make for pleasure for yourself. Yeah. But we were such an agrarian society for, you know, a good part of the, yeah. at least the inward, you know, when right. these people moved west and, and it was, you know, sus, you know, sustain yourself, sustenance and, yeah. So we finally but graduated so to pleasure. But so bounty that... No, I yeah. don't think we did. I mean, I think that's the argument that people make is that we graduated to pleasure when we learned about French food and how French people eat. Um, hmm. But that America has, you know, from an early, early period, really represented a bounty and, and variety in a way that other nations, especially in Europe, couldn't provide. So Americans always had more possibilities for what could be on their table than anyone else, essentially. Hmm. And what they chose to do with it then appears sort of from this 21st century perspective to be, or even, you know, from a mid 20th century perspective, to be um, not enough, like not interesting enough. So if you take your, um, you know, you take your fresh um, corn out of the field and you uh, make it into creamed corn, that's, you're just abusing the bounty that you have. So there's the, another critique that comes often from Europeans, often after the, the Second World War, when they've gone through an, you know, a horrible period of, um, of food suffering, right. that Americans have all this food and they don't know what to do with it. Hmm. But, of course, Americans have been eating all of their food in the way that they liked it and that it shows up in these community cookbooks um, you know, for hundreds of years. It just happens to be a different taste, a different palate, right? Um, so it, it's interesting. It's this this kind of this idea of progress and the idea of good food and bad food and knowing about food, which I think is more construction than than really a reality, but fascinating construction. For what me. was the major shift that you observed in your research in cookbook writing um, about those who are writing about American cuisine? Yeah. Was there? A, can you? Pinpoint yeah. anything in there, particular? Well, there are some interesting things. There are a couple of interesting things that happen. There's the change in style, which is the MFK Fisher right. writing about experience, um, and the, the big period of critique that comes in the 40s and 50s. And then in the, in the 60s, um, an, an attempt to, uh, to undermine the shift towards experience and the gourmet by um, trying to get everything done really quickly. So Peg Bracken's I Hate to Cook cookbook is right. really important because yes. it's saying, like, oh, forget it. You know, give up on that whole Julia Child fantasy and just get something on the table and, and eat there it are and some then really, get drunk, essentially. There, there right? are some really great recipes. There are, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're, almost every book I've read has had great recipes of one kind or another. And then um, in the 70s, in the early 70s, there's a really important shift um, into talking about food as being dangerous. So thinking, uh, thinking about food in terms of the environment. And I think that really resonates with what's going on today, talking about sustainability. And, right. you know, we're sitting actually under a garden under right a garden, now. They're right. growing all their food <laughs> in the restaurant. Um, so that, that talking about the environment, talking about pollution, talking about um, DDT especially. And, and so a shift towards trying to think about food as safe or unsafe. And that's a really different way to think about your food and think about the food systems right, as well. Right, food system, right. Yeah. I think that the whole notion of food systems uh, came into... Yeah, uh, but was... early and then kind of 
sort of got subsumed under the nouvelle cuisine for a little while and then has kind of come back to us mm-hmm. in different ways. I mean, now we're talking about the farmer and people didn't really talk about the farmer so much in the 70s. Right. Yeah. Yeah, now now we have magazines devoted solely to, you know, to uh, to what the farm I mean, farmers are the new rock stars yeah. of, of the culinary yeah. world. The chefs were for a while, you know, now it's um, the farmers. And I think that's very interesting. We're going to see a lot of, of interesting writing about that. Kind and of farmers writing their own, you know, there's this big sort of market for farmers to write their own stories. Right. And again, it's moving back to the idea of food as experience, um, but then blending it with the idea of food as part of a larger system, mm-hmm. which I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, you say um, the writing, talking about the demise of gourmet, um, and the writing really was, I can't say it was just, a, it wasn't definitely not American cuisine because that was that was the thrill to open yes. gourmet magazine and say, oh, what wonderful Where exotic am place am I month? going? Yeah. Right, exactly. So that was really more of a travel and experience. And the readers loved it. They wrote mm-hmm. in always their, the letters in gourmet are, are really my favorite material. Um, and they wrote in to say, oh, we were just at this little restaurant in Venice, and, you know, this is what we had, and they'd write in and try to get the recipe. That's right. Could you please, and I think yes. a couple of the different magazines, um, Bon Appetit as well, you know, we'll publish, we'll try to find them for you. If you yes. Yeah, yeah. And that, so it's a way a way for the readers to connect with other readers and to show themselves off in a way to That's say, right. I know the world. My favorite example is this woman who wrote in the 40s, and she wanted a recipe for goulash that she had in a Hungarian restaurant in Tokyo. So she's showing off, I know Hungarian cuisine, I've been to Tokyo, I read gourmet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is, was often criticized as being elitist, as which as many cookbooks were as well. Um, and But who wants to read about the mundane, right? Right, yeah. I mean, occasionally, I've sort of charted what American food gourmet wrote about. And this is only up to the, to the late 70s that I've read so far. And they wrote about food stuff. So they'd write about corn, apples, cranberries. But they didn't write about food, about cooking, American cooking, until the late 70s. And huh. then they started getting into, you know, once you get Edna Lewis, I think things open yes. up a little bit more. Yeah. Oh, Americans cook interesting food, yeah. you know. Um, and, of course, Edna Lewis had sort of come into the the food writer's consciousness through a French restaurant, sort That's of a right. pseudo-French restaurant yeah. that she worked yeah. for. But that it's always, it's always about, like, they have this continual series of articles about corn, that are always the same, that start with the Indians giving the corn to the pilgrims and yeah. every, you know. Um, and but never end up in hush puppies somehow. I was going to say, yeah, that's usually around Thanksgiving time. <laughs> or corn dogs. They never yeah. read about corn, corn dogs. dogs. right. <laughs> I mean, you can chart, you can chart a lot of the recipes um, annually that yes. kind of reappear in yes. different guise you know, in, in each issue right. of, of oh, every it's November, it's cranberries again. Magazine, right? <laughs> I swear they recycle some of those covers too. Right? They do, yeah. <laughs> but not really. I mean, I, they they don't. But it, what are you going to do? That's and that really, I think probably that you know, think looking at Thanksgiving dinner, mm-hmm. that is really sort of like a time everyone says, "Oh, it's my favorite holiday." Right. It is a really obviously a very American holiday, but it's a time where we sort of bring together all those family favorites, those mm-hmm. family dishes. And I and I guess that is an epitome of, of American cuisine, although the dishes aren't strictly American, but no. it is the hometown cuisine, you know, your home, your family's well, it's cuisine. it's pretty interesting. It's so, it turns out it's really different um, regionally. So I actually, mm-hmm. I was invited to talk to some foreign students about what uh, the, the meaning of Thanksgiving was. And, um, you know, I asked them, and they had some ideas about what sorts of foods uh, they would see on the table. And then I asked students in another in a class I had who were all, you know, recent immigrants or American-born, and their ideas about what would be on the Thanksgiving table were nothing like what I had thought. I'm Northeastern. And they, um, 
a lot of them had um, macaroni and cheese. Huh. Macaroni and cheese, no turkey. They had a ham. So there were... there. It seemed to me that there actually wasn't any standard that I'd assumed all along. Oh, we know what Thanksgiving dinner is. But these were dishes that to them represented American cuisine. What's interesting. That's but they what represented we were... Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Maybe they were the festival foods of that, of whatever culture they came from. Yeah, yeah. But I was, it, it made my job sort of harder because I, I was trying to say, oh, well, I'll tell you the real origin of, you know, the, the pumpkin pie and go through the whole Lydia Maria Child and um, FDR story. But they didn't have a pumpkin pie on their table, so I didn't I didn't have anything to work with, <laughs> which is fine, right? Well, I was surprised, actually, that macaroni and cheese did not come up as an answer for, yes. for one of the national dishes. I guess because people associated it with being a pasta, so they probably figured, oh, right away, that, well, we can't oh, include that. So funny. No, there's been a macaroni yeah. recipe since the, what, since the 18th century, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, mac and cheese is, is, is a biggie, <laughs> right. Well, I, I really don't know that um, I want to limit ourselves and say that we have a national no, dish. No. I think it's so wonderful that we are such an international right. nation and that we we really draw upon all these different cultures. The way pizza is one of our national Absolutely. dishes, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And and I think that that sounds like a really good lunch to <laughs> have does. today. Right, here we are at Roberta's Restaurant. <laughs> what a great thing to have. Well, I look forward to a book. I, what I didn't mention is that you have a book that's going to be coming out soon called Taste of the Nation, American Cookbooks and Culture, and precisely what we're talking about today. <laughs> and I really do look forward to reading that book. And we'll have to have you back again sure. and find <laughs> out what you learned when you wrote that book. So once again, Megan Elias, thank you so much. Thank you. And this has been A Taste of the Past with Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's a lot of posturing and talking around raw milk these days and how great it is. But if you really want to get a full-on investigation into the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of raw milk consumption, here's a nifty website, www.realrawmilkfacts.com. It has a laundry list of FAQs, along with information from studies and reports from American and European science communities. If you flirt with raw milk consumption, this is definitely worth taking a look at. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer.